All right, let's uh, get started, and we will begin. We're looking at, uh, does everybody have copies of the notes? Everybody have the notes? Anybody need some, some notes? Everybody got those? Okay. We're looking at chapters 8 and 9. We started on that last week. But these chapters form a nice little unit because they talk about Paul's uh, encouraging the uh, Corinthians to complete the collection that they started last year. Paul is taking a collection for the what he calls the poor Christians in Jerusalem and Judea who are suffering in some very difficult times, apparently. And so he would like the Gentile churches to show their support, their unity with the Jewish churches, the Jewish church in Jerusalem particularly, by uh, contributing to this offering. And the Corinthians uh, began last, Paul says, last year before I wrote this, You've started this, but you haven't completed it. And we think the reason that is because of the difficulties between Paul and the Corinthians. They've had some falling outs, you know. And we've just seen that things have been patched up some because Paul sent Titus to Corinth with a severe letter. And Titus comes back in chapter 7 and says, Paul says in chapter 7, I'm so happy Titus has come. He's refreshed me. You refreshed him. He told me about your sorrow. He told me about your repentance and so forth. So things are sort of patched up between Paul and the Corinthians. So now he can remind them again about this offering that they were eager to participate in, but now has kind of stalled. So last week we looked at... uh, uh, the collection for the poor saints, the contribution of the Macedonians. Remember, Paul starts off in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. He wants to encourage the Corinthians by pointing to the Macedonians. Who are the Macedonians? That would be like the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Berea. We know those churches are in Macedonia, the province of Macedonia. Corinth is further south, that's the province of Achaia. And so Paul begins, remember, in chapter 8, he says, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And he says, the amazing thing about them was that uh, they gave when seemingly you would think they wouldn't be able to give anything. And Paul says, I never really asked them to give anything. I didn't really ask them to participate in this. Because they were in poverty. They were in such poverty that I didn't expect them to give anything. Uh, Paul will say, he'll talk about how he expects the Corinthians to give here. And he doesn't expect anybody to give so they become poor. He'll, He'll say, I want you to give out of your excess, out of your plenty. But the Macedonians, he says... They pleaded with me. They begged me to let 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 them be a part of this missionary offering, this offering. And so I did. And so he starts off, he wants to remind the Corinthians that they need to complete this thing they started and promised to do. But he starts off by giving them some encouragement here by talking about the 
Macedonians. And then in chapter 6, verses 15, the section we're in now, this is the encouragement to similar generosity. The Macedonians are very generous, and now he's encouraging them. Uh, he says in verse 6 and 7, since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, they think of themselves as tremendous Christians, they call it. They think they're, they're hot stuff because they have all these spiritual gifts and all this kind of stuff. And so he, they, they think very highly of themselves. And Paul says, well, I'd like for you to excel in this gift, not only tongues and prophecy and all that, but the grace of giving also. And so he says, verse 8, I'm not commanding you this, you know, but I'm doing this to test the sincerity of your love. Verse 10, he says, and here is my judgment about what is best for you. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do it. Now finish the work, he says, is what he's arguing. Now he talks here in verses 13 through 15, where we left off last time, uh, about the aim of equality. He said, our desire is not that others might be relieved. That's the Jerusalem churches and so forth. While you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. So in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. Um, I, we don't know... We, you know, we don't know all the reasons why the offerings at, from, from the Corinthians had been languishing, as I say here. We don't know. We know there's hard, there's difficulties between Paul and the Corinthians. We don't know all the reasons, but I say here, they may have felt though, uh, felt that enough, they had enough financial problems of their own, maybe. They may have felt like, hey, we're burdened enough. We don't need to be part of this offering. But Paul says the goal here is equality. Now, this is a tough word to translate. In Colossians 4.1, this word is translated fair. He says, Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair. Paul wants fairness here. It means equitable or fair. And Paul, as we'll see, is not arguing for equality of supply, but that basic needs are met. Paul is not advocating here redistribution of wealth. He's not advocating socialism here. He's not saying everybody should have the same income. No, he talks about your plenty. At the present time, your plenty. Not your necessities, not, you know, but your plenty, your excess. You have you have excess now. You're you're in wealthy Corinth. Corinth was known as being a fairly wealthy place. So you're in wealthy Corinth, you're better off than a lot of other people, and so so that your excess, your your plenty will supply what they need. Um, so even the rich here are not called upon to give so lavishly that they become poor, and the poor become rich. So Paul is saying, but those who enjoy... A greater share of material blessings are called upon to make certain that those who have a smaller share through no fault of their own are not in want. So Paul is talking about helping these other Christians who through no fault of their own have these needs. Remember Paul says to the Thessalonians, if a person will not work, 
they shouldn't eat. So Paul's not a socialist here. He's not talking about redistribution of wealth. He's talking about people who are poor through no fault of their own. These are very difficult times. It's hard to imagine the kind of society people lived in. We live in an American society where people are upward and mobile. You can be born in poverty and become very wealthy in just one generation. But in most of the world throughout history, that's not been true. If you were poor, if your father was poor, you're poor. If your father's a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith. If your father's a farmer, you're a farmer. There's no upward mobility. And so poverty was just something you were born with and you died with, and your children were going to be poor too. There was no way to, no way to, to do what we do in America today where a person can, can increase their standing and so forth. So these people had been hit with some circumstances in Jerusalem through no fault of their own, and Paul says, that's why I'm taking this offering. Uh, I say the Macedonian churches in giving out of their poverty were the exception rather than the rule of giving out of their plenty. They gave even beyond their ability and thus were a notable demonstration of God's grace. Verse 15, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Paul turns to the Old Testament account here of the Israelites in the wilderness, Exodus 13. To illustrate this need for equity, I said, or equality here, uh, some gathered more, others gathered less, but all the needs were met. So the key phrase here, as much as he needed, is an equity of needs met, not an equity of supply that this narrative illustrates here. Even so, some gathered more and some gathered less, all the needs were met. So Paul says, see here, I'm going to send Titus, the sending of Titus and his companions, 8.16 through 9.5. He's, 9, 9.5. He's encouraged the Corinthians to give. He's exhorted them. He's given them the illustration of the Macedonians. Now he's going to send Titus along before Paul comes. He's going to send Titus and some other representatives. So first of all, we see the introduction of the messengers that Paul is going to send to Corinth. I say this letter is this section is really Paul's letter of commendation of the church at Corinth, giving the credentials of the three appointed delegates and encouraging the Corinthians to welcome them. So he's going to mention three people here. Well, actually, only one by name, Titus. Then he says the brother, and then our brother. He mentions three men here, but only one by name. First, he mentions Titus. Now, Titus has just come back. He brought. He took the severe letter. He's come back, but with a good report. The Corinthians know him. So one of the persons that Paul is going to send ahead of him before Paul comes is Titus. Thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm on his own initiative. Um, I say here, Paul wished to avoid any personal criticism involving the offering for the, from, from for Jerusalem. Uh, we are taking great pains, he says in 8.21, to do what is right. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, he insisted that the collection, the collection occur prior to his coming. So Paul, was, Paul didn't want to be seen particularly as handling the money. Remember back there in 1 Corinthians 16, he said, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside. So Paul, so, so there will have to be no collection when I come. So Paul is trying to put some distance between himself and the money. So he says, first of all, I want you to 
make this collection before I come. So there's no, doesn't have to be a collection. I don't have to get up there and beg for money and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's already done. He says, I want you to do that. And then he says, um, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to men you approve and send them with you to the gift. So Paul is saying, uh, when, when this offering goes to Jerusalem, I'm, you're going to appoint representatives to go along with this money. So Paul, they're going to take this, this money's going back to Jerusalem, Paul says, but also people are going to go from your church, representatives. Uh, and so there can't be any hanky-panky here. It's not like we're putting in Paul's bank account and Paul's going off to Jerusalem and we may never hear from this guy again. You know, it's not that, no. Paul is sending representatives from the churches. Um, and so here is Titus. He's commending Titus. This is a letter of recommendation to the Corinthians. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming with you with much enthusiasm on his own initiative. Paul had urged the collection to be completed, but this is his own initiative now. He wants to get this done. So the second person is the brother, 18 through 21. Verse 18, And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. So I say in addition to Titus, Paul's sending two representatives to help Titus, one of whom, both of whom are unnamed. The first is an identified Christian brother that Paul was sending with Titus. He, had, he was sending with Titus, had a double qualification. First, he's well-known and highly praised in all the churches. Now we wonder, you know, sometimes, why doesn't Paul mention who this guy is? I don't know why Paul doesn't mention who this... He says he's well-known, so the point is, how did these? What happened to these letters when they got to Corinth? When they got to Corinth, when these letters got to the churches, they were read orally in the churches. So they didn't. They didn't go to the copy machine and make copies and pass them out. Somebody got up in church and read this letter. Just think about when we get to Philippians chapter four, and you're in the church of Corinth. I mean, church of Philippi, and Paul calls out two women of the church. They're reading that church. Can you just imagine that. They're reading, and I beseech Syntyche, and I beseech Euodia. Just imagine they're calling out your name while they're in church, and Paul is mentioning you in not a very favorable light. Well, Paul doesn't mention these names, but these men would be there. They would be standing there as Titus or somebody is reading the letter. So they would. These these men maybe have been well known. He says he says they're well. This man is well known in the churches. So he doesn't mention his name, but this is somebody they would be familiar with. The fact that he's called the brother rather than our brother. The next man is called our brother, which means he's probably an associate of the Apostle Paul. This man is not an associate of the Apostle Paul, apparently. He just says he is the brother rather than our brother. So we know a couple of things about him. He's well known in the churches... And secondly, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry this offering. Now remember what we're talking about here. We noticed that, we've talked about before, that before all this happens, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. 
Then he goes to Macedonia in Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And it's there that he writes 2 Corinthians. So Paul is in Macedonia right now. He's writing 2 Corinthians. We don't know whether he's at Philippi, Thessalonica, or Berea, somewhere. <coughs> One of, probably Philippi, I'm guessing, but we don't know. He's in Macedonia. And he's writing 2 Corinthians. And then, after this book is finished and Paul has sent it, the next thing in the book of Acts is Paul arrives in Greece, this is probably Corinth, where he stays three months. So Paul is going to come. Now he's sending these, he's sending Titus and these two men on ahead to get ready for this offering. But he is coming shortly, and he does come. He comes and he stays there three months. And while he's there, he writes the letter to the church at Rome. The epistle to Rome, Romans is written while he's at Corinth here. And in that epistle, uh, well, I should say, Paul, Paul uh, ultimately was planning to leave from Corinth and go, uh, and go back to Jerusalem. But it says in Acts 20, some Jews had plotted against him and he decided to go back to Macedonia. So Paul had come to Corinth, he got the offering, he was planning to go to Jerusalem, but there was a plot to kill him. So he has to come back through. And if you follow the book of Acts, he comes back to Troas, he comes all the way down here, he finally gets a ship and comes back to Jerusalem eventually. But, um, so Paul uh, has to go back through, and Acts chapter 20, verse 4, the very next verse says this, and he was accompanied, now that is, as Paul is going back with these men, now these these he has the offering, right? And he's traveling with some brothers here. It says he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. So there's three possibilities. We're just saying these might be this might be that man. This that is. We're talking about who is this brother that Paul is talking about that he is sending from Macedonia. Well, Paul was accompanied. This man had gone to Macedonia. He's coming back with Paul. It's probably Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, or Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Maybe one of those was this brother here that is not actually named. Verse 20. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. So as I say here, because he's the prime mover, Paul anticipated there could be criticism, certainly of him and his motives. And so he's taking all these precautions by sending these representatives, by having people come with him. Uh, you know, people could, I mean, I'm suggesting here, any, people could say a lot of things. They could say, hey... Paul wants this money. He's going, to take a, he's going to take a cut for himself. People can make up all kinds of things about Paul. And so he's being very careful here, he says, with this liberal gift. He's, he, apparently it's a very large gift. Then he talks about our brother. Another representative, there's Titus, the brother, maybe one of those three men I mentioned there, possibly, and our brother. In addition, we are sending with him our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. So because he's identified as our brother means he is probably a colleague of the Apostle Paul. Again, he is not named, but 
Paul says in many ways he has proved his zeal, he says. And, in, and, and, we, and we have this confidence uh, in you. So that's why he's being sent. Um, I say we don't know why Paul doesn't name either of these brothers. Uh, as I say, I talked about before, he's, they're certainly going to be introduced when Paul reads, when their letter is read at Corinth, maybe by Titus. Neither are we sure why Paul chose to send three delegates. You know, Normally, uh, why wouldn't one be sufficient? <clears throat> maybe because there's been so much difficulty with Corinth. Paul wants to make sure. I'm going to send Titus, but I'm going to send another brother from these churches in Macedonia who's well-respected, and I'm sending another guy. Hey, I'm going to make sure. I'm sending three different people. I'm not just sending one of my cronies down there. Uh, I'm sending three different guys, and there can't be any question about the, uh, this is on the up and up. Then he has a commendation of the group in verses 23 through 24. As for Titus, he's my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. So this is an important statement when Paul says they are representatives of the churches. Uh, this, this is the word apostle here. They are apostles of the churches. We don't usually translate the word apostolos, apostle here because we use the word apostle for an apostle of Christ, and we don't want to confuse things. But this means these were appointed representatives. They have authority to represent the church, and Paul is emphasizing that. They're representatives, officials of the church, and they're an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. So Paul concludes his commendation here, letter of commendation, with a couple of appeals here. First, the Corinthians were to give evidence of their love, and second, they were to demonstrate the reason for Paul's pride in them. This would certainly include extending hospitality. Be friendly, be hospitable to these men who were coming with Titus at the present time. Well, now we get this exhortation to readiness. I say here in the notes, I say, I, I, how to describe this. Paul, some suggest here Paul uses a little reverse psychology. Uh, is he buttering them up? Notice why he says it. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, that is, this offering, this giving. For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them since last year, Tremendous givers in Corinth, man. They got they got the big givers down. That's that's the Bill Collins paraphrase here. No. <laughs> Telling them since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. So I've been telling them what good givers you are in Corinth and how eager you are, and this has stimulated the Macedonians to say, We'd like to be a part of this too, as the Corinthians are here. So um the problem is this eagerness had not translated into action. He says, I know of your eagerness and I've been boasting about it. So we have to draw a distinction between the fact that they were eager and the fact that they actually haven't completed the collection. Um, they hadn't been giving liberally. Um, their enthusiasm had waned here. 
during the troubles that they had had with the Apostle Paul and so forth. But now, so the the connection between chapters 8 and 9 is this. So the offering is stalled, and now Paul wants to use the Macedonians as an encouragement, maybe as a little bit of a rebuke uh, to the Corinthians for their giving. Notice verse 3. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. See, I told the Macedonians, the Corinthians are the big givers, man. And, and we're just we going to get down there, they're going to have this big you know, gift. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared. Now this is more Macedonians. Paul is sending those three brothers on ahead. They're supposed to see that the offering is completed. But Paul says, then I'm coming later. And he says, if I bring some Macedonians with me, you know the people that I've been boasting about what great givers you are, and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. This could be a real embarrassment for you. If we come, I've been boasting about you, and we get there and there's nothing. As I say, although the Corinthians had initially been eager to help with the offering, over the last year the eagerness had waned. So Paul's sending the brothers in order to avoid a couple of embarrassing situations. He didn't want his repeated boast and confident boast to turn out to be nothing, you know, to be an embarrassment. (laughs) These Corinthians, these Macedonians would come and they would certainly be embarrassed. Paul would be embarrassed. So I thought it necessary, verse 5, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance. So that's why I'm sending Titus and these two other brothers. I thought it necessary to, to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift and not one grudgingly given. I mean, it's still a gift, you know. If you give it, it's still good. But, as we'll see, it's better if it's not grudgingly given, you know. Have you ever grudgingly, you know, given? Every April 15th. (laughs) (laughs) But have you ever been in a situation in church where you weren't really planning to give? Nobody's going to admit that here, I know. We have all super saints here, but have you ever been in church where you weren't really planning to give, but, you know, you're kind of pushed along, and okay, I guess I'll have to put some money in here, you know, it wasn't what I was really thinking about. But So Paul would say, what we really want is something that is not grudgingly given. So in order to try and avoid either of these embarrassments, Paul thought it necessary to urge the brothers to prepare for his coming by supervising these arrangements. And he reminds them of their earlier commitment, the generous gift you promised. Well, then we see... Uh, the results of generous giving. Paul's going to talk about what happens when we give generously. What happens as a general principle? Chapter 9, 6 through 15. He says, first of all, there is increased blessings to the giver. So when we give generously, Paul says, there is blessing that comes to us. 
It says, remember this, whosoever, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As I say here, Paul uses a proverb, what appears to be a proverb in verse 6, to emphasize the rewards of generous giving. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. There's no exact parallel to this in Proverbs, but there's a lot of Proverbs that sound like it, you know, a lot of texts. One person gives freely and gains even more. Another withholds unduly and becomes to poverty. Person, a generous person will prosper and so forth. There's lots of Proverbs like that. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them by what they have done. Whoever sows wickedness reaps trouble and so forth. Give and it will be given to you, Jesus says, a man reaps what he sows. So there's you know, a lot of things that sound like this. Certainly this is a, a principle that we see in other texts here, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I say the principle is clear. We harvest in proportion to our planting. The image of the harvest also suggests the freedom of the sower to plant as much seed as he chooses, whether sparingly or generously. In the same way, each person is responsible to, as he says, decide in their heart what they should give. And then give what they have decided, Paul says here in uh, verse 7. Decide in your heart what to give. Each person should decide in their heart and then give, not under compulsion, but give what they've decided. So giving should come from an inward resolve, not from an impulsive or casual decision. Um, Once the amount determined that you want to give, Paul says... You should give it cheerfully uh, because the cheerful giver, as he says, receives God's approval. And he says, uh, he is able, verse 8, to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He doesn't say he will bless you abundantly so that in all things and all times you will abound in Cadillacs and speedboats and diamond rings. He doesn't say that. Having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. I say here, God's response to generosity Verse 6, and a cheerful giver, verse 7, is to bless you abundantly. What is this form of grace? or this? What is, what is it that God does? What gift? I say, although the focus of the chapter is on material blessings, blessings it may be that Paul is thinking of all the benefits we receive from God. So my point here is to say, it seems clear there's not an exact quid pro quo. I mean, that's what the TV preachers say, you know. If you send in $10 seed money, you'll get 100 If you send $100 in, 
you'll get a thousand. If you send your rent money in, you'll you'll get what evicted. (laughs) You send your rent money, you'll get evicted. So we don't want to go, you know, too far one way or the other. It is true. Paul says God will bless those who give generously. You know, that's really true. God will bless. But it's not an exact quid pro pro. God will give you all that you need so you can abound in every good work. Um, And he says God is able to bless you abundantly. He doesn't say God will bless you. Now, I think in the context it probably is the emphasis God will God will normally bless you abundantly as you give. But he says God is able to bless you abundantly so that you can abound. I think in this context it's pretty much the same as God will. Um... So Paul is saying, as we give for the work of God to help to do the things that God would have us to do in the church, he says God will supply our needs so that we can continue that work. I say to illustrate this point, he quotes Psalm 112. uh, They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. He's using this psalm... um, praising those who gave freely to the poor. The psalm uses the figure of sowing, just as Paul had done in 9.6 to describe the righteous person as dispensing generously to those in need. Um, So as a result of, the psalmist is saying, as a result of these benevolent acts of piety, uh, their righteousness will never be forgotten. It will remain forever. He's going to talk, now he's going to pick up on that in relation to um, the Macedonian, the, the Jerusalem churches and the Corinthians give. Verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So as I said previously in verse 6, Paul had observed that the person who sows sparingly will reap a meager harvest. Now he develops the imagery of sowing and reaping using terminology from Isaiah 55.10, Hosea 10.12 to emphasize the truth that generosity pays handsome dividends. So he's saying if God routinely blesses the farmer here with a harvest of grain, God can do the same thing for us in the realm of grace, he says. Um... This is only true, of course, if our intentions are proper. He says, so that you can be generous on every occasion. Occasion. So the, the primary act that Paul has in mind is being, if a person really desires to give, gives with the right attitude, not grudgingly, then Paul is saying, God will supply your needs. God will supply the needs of the Lord's people. He's commanding, he's commanding a lifestyle here of generosity, isn't it? And I say here, Paul adds a statement in the last part of verse 11 that will develop now. The Jerusalem saints, as the grateful recipients of the Corinthians' liberal gift, administered by Paul and his colleagues, would express their thanks to God. And Paul sees that as one of the main benefits we'll see here of giving, is that giving brings thanks to God. And that's our last thing here. Increase thanksgiving to the Lord. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, that's a good thing, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. 
because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. I say in verse 12, Paul now says that not only does the giver benefit from generosity, because Paul says as we give, God will bless us. may not always give us material blessings, but gives us other blessings. We'll be blessed as we give. If we give in the right attitude, as we give not grudgingly. Paul says not only will the giver be blessed, um, but the recipients benefit, supplying the needs for of the Lord's people. And above all, this generosity promotes the glory of God by prom- promoting many expressions of thanks to Him. So um, there's the first reason, which is the Jerusalem saints, they need help. And that's going to bring thanksgiving from them. They're going to thank you and they're going to thank God mostly. That's the key. Um, when people, you know, you, you, you're the same way. When God has supplied your need, you know, the first thing you think of as a Christian is thank God for this. You know, it promotes thanksgiving to God. No matter if it comes from another person, you thank that person, but you thank God for this, how God has worked this out. You've been maybe praying about it or something like that. Um, and Paul says here, they're going to they're going to thank you there, but they're going to thank God, and that's going to be the greatest thing of all. Verse fourteen, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. <coughs> There's still two other results this offering will have: prayers for the Corinthians will be offered. And a closer relationship between the Jewish and Gentile elements of the church will be forged. The Jerusalem believers will receive material benefits and return will dispense the spiritual blessings of intercession for the Corinthians. Their hearts will go out to you in prayer. So they'll pray for you, Corinthians. They'll think of you. They'll pray for you. Verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So Paul ends this appeal with this doxology. A doxology, as I say, is an expression of praise to God that also becomes a reminder of the supreme example of giving the Father's gift of the Son. Well, did this work? Paul's got these two chapters. He's sending these people on to Corinth to get this, you know, hopefully to get this offering finished. Did it work? Well, remember I said that Paul... After he writes this letter, after he sends these men, he himself comes to Greece, comes to Corinth, where he stays for three months. And he writes there the letter to the Romans. Remember? Here's what he says in the letter to the Romans. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's that's Corinth, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. So apparently it worked, didn't it? The Corinthians did come through. And they did make this generous offering. And so Paul's work here of encouraging them was very successful. All right, we're at our time. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week.